This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and Chapter 3 from Lawrence Beasley's The Loss of the Titanic. Chapter 3. The Collision and Embarkation in Lifeboats I had been fortunate enough to secure a two-berth cabin to myself, D-56, quite close to the saloon and most convenient in every way for getting about the ship and on a big ship like the Titanic, it was quite a consideration to be on D-deck, only three decks below the top, or boat deck. Below D again were cabins on E and F decks, and to walk from a cabin on F deck up to the top deck, climbing five flights of stairs on the way, was certainly a considerable task for those not able to take much exercise. The Titanic management has been criticized, among other things, for supplying the boat with lifts, or elevators. It has been said they were an expensive luxury, and the room they took up might have been utilized in some way for more life-saving appliances. Whatever else may have been superfluous, lifts certainly were not. Old ladies, for example, in cabins on F-deck would hardly have got to the top deck during the whole voyage had they not been able to ring for the lift boy. Perhaps nothing gave one a greater impression of the size of the ship than to take the lift from the top and dropped slowly down past the different floors, discharging and taking in passengers just as in a large hotel. I wonder where the lift boy was that night. I would have been glad to find him in our boat, or in the Carpathia when we took count of the saved. He was quite young, not more than sixteen, I think, a bright-eyed, handsome boy with a love for the sea and the games on deck and the view over the ocean. And he did not get any of them. One day, as he put me out of his lift and saw through the vestibule windows a game of deck quoits in progress, he said, in a wistful tone, My, I wish I could go out there sometimes. I wished he could, too, and made a jesting offer to take charge of his lift for an hour while he went out to watch the game. But he smilingly shook his head and dropped down in answer to an imperative ring from below. I think he was not on duty with his lift after the collision, but if he were... He would smile at his passengers all the time as he took them up to the boats waiting to leave the sinking ship. After undressing and climbing into the top berth, I read from about quarter past eleven to the time we struck, about quarter to twelve. During this time I noticed particularly the increased vibration of the ship, and I assumed that we were going at a higher speed than at any other time since we sailed from Queenstown. Now I am aware that this is an important point and bears strongly on the question of responsibility for the effects of the collision. But the impression of 
Increased vibration is fixed in my memory so strongly that it seems important to record it. Two things led me to this conclusion. First, that as I sat on the sofa undressing with bare feet on the floor, the jar of the vibration came up from the engines below very noticeably. And second, that as I sat up in the berth reading, the spring mattress supporting me was vibrating more rapidly than usual. This cradle-like motion was always noticeable as one lay in bed, but that night there was certainly a marked increase in the motion. I'm sure we were going faster that night at the time we struck the iceberg than we had done before, during the hours I was awake and able to take note of anything. And then, as I read in the quietness of the night, broken only by the muffled sound that came to me through the ventilators, of stewards talking and moving along the corridors, when nearly all the passengers were in their cabins, some asleep in bed, others undressing, and others only just down from the smoking room and still discussing many things. There came what seemed to me nothing more than an extra heave of the engines and a more than usually obvious dancing motion of the mattress on which I sat. Nothing more than that. No sound of a crash or of anything else. No sense of shock. No jar that felt like one heavy body meeting another. And presently the same thing repeated with about the same intensity. The thought came to me that they must have still further increased the speed. And all this time the Titanic was being cut open by the iceberg and water was pouring in her side. And yet no evidence that would indicate such a disaster had been presented to us. It fills me with astonishment now to think of it. Consider the question of list alone. Here was this enormous vessel running starboard side onto an iceberg, and a passenger sitting quietly in bed, reading, felt no motion or list to the opposite or port side, and this must have been felt had it been more than the usual roll of the ship. Never very much in the calm weather we had all the way. Again, my bunk was fixed to the wall on the starboard side, and any list to port would have tended to fling me out on the floor. I am sure I should have noted it had there been any. And yet the explanation is simple enough. The Titanic struck the berg with a force of impact of over a million foot-tons. Her plates were less than an inch thick, and they must have been cut through as a knife cuts paper. There would be no need to list. It would have been better if she had listed and thrown us out on the floor, for it would have been an indication that our plates were strong enough to offer, at any rate, some resistance to the blow, and we might all have been safe today. And so, with no thought of anything serious having happened to the ship, I continued my reading, and still the murmur from the stewards and from adjoining cabins, and no other sound. No cry in the night, no alarm given, no one afraid. There was then nothing which could cause fear to the most timid person. But in a few moments, I felt the engine slow and stop. The dancing motion and the vibration ceased suddenly after being a part of our very existence for four days. And that was the first hint that anything out of the ordinary had happened. We have all heard a loud ticking clock stop suddenly in a quiet room and then have noticed the clock and the ticking noise, of which we seemed until then quite unconscious. So in the same way, the fact was suddenly brought home to all in the ship that the engines, that part of the ship that drove us to the sea, had stopped dead. But the stopping of the engines gave us no information, 
we had to make our own calculations as to why we had stopped. Like a flash it came to me. We have dropped a propeller blade. When this happens, the engines always race away until they're controlled, and this accounts for the extra heave they gave. Not a very logical conclusion when I consider it now, for the engine should have continued to heave all the time until we stopped. But it was at the time a sufficiently tenable hypothesis to hold. Acting on it, I jumped out of bed, slipped on a dressing gown over pajamas, put on shoes, and went out of my cabin into the hall near the saloon. Here was a steward leaning against the staircase, probably waiting until those in the smoke room above had gone to bed and he could put out the lights. I said, Why have we stopped? I don't know, sir, he replied, but I don't suppose it's anything much. Well, I said, I am going on deck to see what it is, and started towards the stairs. He smiled indulgently at me as I passed him and said, All right, sir, but it is mighty cold up there. I am sure at the time he thought I was rather foolish to go up with so little reason, and I must confess I felt rather absurd for not remaining in the cabin. It seemed like making a needless fuss to walk about the ship in a dressing gown. But it was my first trip across the sea. I had enjoyed every minute of it and was keenly alive to note every new experience and certainly to stop in the middle of the sea with a propeller dropped seemed sufficient reason for going on deck. And yet the steward, with his fatherly smile, and the fact that no one else was about the passages or going upstairs to reconnoiter, made me feel guilty in an undefined way of breaking some code of the ship's regime, an Englishman's fear of being thought unusual, perhaps. I climbed the three flights of stairs, opened the vestibule door leading to the top deck, and stepped out into an atmosphere that cut me, clad as I was, like a knife. Walking to the starboard side, I peered over and saw the sea many feet below, calm and black. Forward, the deserted deck stretching away to the first-class quarters and the captain's bridge, and behind, the steerage quarters and the stern bridge. Nothing more? No iceberg on either side or stern as far as we could see in the darkness. There were two or three men on deck, and with one, the Scotch engineer who played hymns in the saloon. I compared notes of our experiences. He had just begun to undress when the engine stopped and had come up at once, so that he was fairly well clad. None of us could see anything, and all being quiet and still, the Scotchman and I went down to the next deck. Through the windows of the smoking room we saw a game of cards going on with several onlookers, and went in to inquire if they knew more than we did. They had apparently felt rather more of the heaving motion, but so far as I remember, none of them had gone out on deck to make any inquiries even when one of them had seen through the windows an iceberg go by, towering above the decks. He had called their attention to it, and they all watched it disappear, but had then at once resumed the game. We asked them the height of the berg, and some said one hundred feet, others sixty feet. One of the onlookers, a motor engineer traveling to America with a model carburetor, he had filled in his declaration form near me in the afternoon and had questioned the library steward how he should declare his patent. Said, Well, I am accustomed to estimating distances, and I put it at between 80 and 90 feet. We accepted his estimate and made guesses as to what had happened to the Titanic. 
The general impression was that we had just scraped the iceberg with a glancing blow on the starboard side, and they had stopped as a wise precaution to examine her thoroughly all over. I expect the iceberg has scratched off some of her new paint, said one, and the captain doesn't like to go on until she's painted up again. We laughed at his estimate of the captain's care for the ship. Poor Captain Smith. He knew by this time only too well what had happened. One of the players, pointing to his glass of whiskey standing at his elbow and turning to an onlooker, said, Just run along the deck and see if any ice has come aboard. I would like some for my drink. Amid the general laughter at what we thought was his imagination, only too realistic, alas, for when he spoke, the forward deck was covered with ice that had tumbled over, and seeing that no more information was forthcoming, I left the smoking room and went down to my cabin, where I sat for some time, reading again. I am filled with sorrow to think I never saw any of the occupants of that smoking room again. Nearly all young men, full of hope for their prospects in a new world, mostly unmarried, keen, alert, with the makings of good citizens. Presently, hearing people walking about the corridors, I looked out and saw several standing in the hall talking to a steward, most of them ladies in dressing gowns. Other people were going upstairs, and I decided to go on deck again, but as it was too cold to do so in a dressing gown, I dressed in a Norfolk jacket and trousers and walked up. There were now more people looking over the side and walking about, questioning each other as to why we had stopped, but without obtaining any definite information. I stayed on deck some minutes, walking about vigorously to keep warm, and occasionally looking downwards to the sea as if something there would indicate the reason for delay. The ship had now resumed her course, moving very slowly through the water with a little white line of foam on each side. I think we were all glad to see this. It seemed better than standing still. I soon decided to go down again, and as I crossed from the starboard to the port side to go down by the vestibule door, I saw an officer climb on the last lifeboat on the port side, number 16, and begin to throw off the cover, but I do not remember that anyone paid any particular attention to him. Certainly no one thought they were preparing to man the lifeboats and embark from the ship. All this time there was no apprehension of any danger in the minds of the passengers, and no one was in any condition of panic or hysteria. After all, it would have been strange if they had been, without any definite evidence of danger. As I passed to the door to go down, I looked forward again, and saw to my surprise an undoubted tilt downwards from the stern to the bows. Only a slight slope, which I don't think anyone had noticed. At any rate, if they did, they hadn't remarked on it. As I went downstairs, a confirmation of this tilting forward came in something unusual about the stairs. A curious sense of something out of balance, and of not being able to put one's feet down in the right place. Naturally, being tilted forward, the stairs would slope downwards at an angle, and tend to throw one forward. I could not see any visible slope of the stairway. It was perceptible only by my sense of balance at this time. On D-deck were three ladies. I think they were all saved, and it's a good thing at least to be able to chronicle meeting someone who was saved after so much record of those who were not, standing in the passage near the cabin. "'Oh, why have we stopped?' they said. "'We did stop,' I replied. "'But we are now going on again.' "'Oh, no,' one replied. "'I cannot feel the engines as I usually do, or hear them. "'Listen.' 
We listened, and there was no throb audible. Having noticed that the vibration of the engines is most noticeable lying in a bath, where the throb comes straight from the floor to its metal sides, too much so ordinarily for one to put one's head back with comfort on the bath, I took them along the corridor to a bathroom and made them put their hands on the side of the bath. They were much reassured to feel the engines throbbing down below and to know we were making some headway. I left them, and on the way to my cabin passed some stewards standing unconcernedly against the walls of the saloon. One of them, the library steward again, was leaning over a table writing. It is no exaggeration to say that they neither had any knowledge of the accident nor any feeling of alarm that we had stopped and had not yet gone on again full speed. Their whole attitude expressed perfect confidence in the ship and officers. Turning into my gangway, my cabin being the first in the gangway, I saw a man standing at the other end of it fastening his tie. Anything fresh? he said. Not much, I replied. We are going ahead slowly, and she is down a little at the bows, but I don't think it is anything serious. Come in and look at this, man, he laughed. He won't get up. I looked in, and in the top bunk lay a man with his back to me, closely wrapped in his bedclothes, and only the back of his head visible. Why won't he get up? Is he asleep? I said. No, laughed the man dressing. He says... But before he could finish the sentence, the man above grunted. You don't catch me leaving a warm bed to go up on that cold deck at midnight. I know better than that. We both told him laughingly why he had better get up, but he was certain he was just as safe there, and all this dressing was quite unnecessary. So I left him and went again to my cabin. I put on some underclothing, sat on the sofa, and read for some ten minutes, when I heard through the open door above the noise of people passing up and down, and a loud shout from above. All passengers on deck, with life belts on. I placed the two books I was reading in the side pockets of my Norfolk jacket, picked up my life belt. Curiously enough, I had taken it down for the first time that night from the wardrobe when I first retired to my cabin, and my dressing gown, and walked upstairs, tying on the life belt. As I came out of my cabin, I remember seeing the purser's assistant, with his foot on the stairs, about to climb them, whisper to a steward, and jerk his head significantly behind him. Not that I thought anything of it at the time, but I have no doubt he was telling him what had happened up in the bows, and was giving him orders to call all passengers. Going upstairs with other passengers, no one ran a step or seemed alarmed. We met two ladies coming down. One seized me by the arm and said, Oh, I have no life belt. Will you come down to my cabin and help me find it? I returned with them to F-deck, the lady who had addressed me holding my arm all the time in a vice-like grip. Much to my amusement. And we found a steward in her gangway who took them in and found their life belts. Coming upstairs again, I passed the purser's window on F-deck and noticed a light inside. When halfway up to E-deck, I heard the heavy metallic clang of the safe door, followed by a hasty step retreating along the corridor toward the first-class quarters. I have little doubt it was the purser who had taken all valuables from his safe and was transferring them to the charge of the first-class purser in hope that they might all be saved in one package. That is why I said above that perhaps the envelope containing my money was not in the safe at the bottom of the sea. It is probably in a bundle, with many others like it, 
waterlogged at the bottom. Reaching the top deck, we found many people assembled there, some fully dressed with coats and wraps, well prepared for anything that might happen, others who had thrown wraps hastily round them when they were called, or heard the summons to equip themselves with life belts. Not in much condition to face the cold of that night. Fortunately, there was no wind to beat the cold air through our clothing. Even the breeze caused by the ship's motion had died entirely away, for the engines had stopped again, and the Titanic lay peacefully on the surface of the sea, motionless, quiet, not even rocking to the roll of the sea. Indeed, as we were to discover presently, the sea was as calm as an island lake, save for the gentle swell which could impart no motion to a ship the size of the Titanic. To stand on the deck, many feet above the water, lapping idly against her sides, and looking much farther off than it really was because of the darkness, gave one a sense of wonderful security. To feel her so steady and still was like standing on a large rock in the middle of the ocean. But there were now more evidences of the coming catastrophe to the observer than had been apparent when on deck last. One was the roar and hiss of escaping steam from the boilers, issuing out of a large steam pipe reaching high up one of the funnels. A harsh, deafening boom that made conversation difficult and no doubt increased the apprehension of some people merely because of the volume of noise. If one imagines twenty locomotives blowing off steam in a low key, it would give some idea of the unpleasant sound that met us as we climbed out on the top deck. But after all, it was the kind of phenomenon we ought to expect. Engines blow off steam when standing in a station, and why should not a ship's boilers do the same when the ship is not moving? I never heard anyone connect this noise with the danger of boiler explosion. In the event of the ship sinking with her boilers under a high pressure of steam, which was no doubt the true explanation of this precaution. But this is perhaps speculation. Some people may have known it quite well, for from the time we came on deck until boat 13 got away, I heard very little conversation of any kind among passengers. It's not the slightest exaggeration to say that no signs of alarm were exhibited by anyone. There was no indication of panic or hysteria, no cries of fear, and no running to and fro to discover what was the matter, why we had been summoned on the deck with life belts, and what was to be done with us now we were there. We stood there quietly looking on at the work of the crew as they manned the lifeboats, and no one ventured to interfere with them or offered to help them. It was plain we should be of no use, and the crowd of men and women stood quietly on the deck or paced slowly up and down, waiting for orders from the officers. Now, before we could consider any further the events that followed, the state of mind of passengers at this juncture, and the motives which led each one to act as he or she did in the circumstances, it is important to keep in thought the amount of information at our disposal. Men and women act according to judgment based on knowledge of the conditions around them, and the best way to understand some apparently inconceivable things that happened is for anyone to imagine himself or herself standing on the deck that night. It seems a mystery to some people that women refused to leave the ship, that some persons retired to their cabins, and so on. But it is a matter of judgment, after all. So that if the reader will come and stand with the crowd on deck, he must first rid himself entirely of the knowledge that the Titanic has sunk, an important necessity, 
for he cannot see conditions as they existed there through the mental haze arising from the knowledge of the greatest maritime tragedy the world has yet known. He must get rid of any foreknowledge of disaster to appreciate why people acted as they did. Secondly, he had better get rid of any picture in thought painted either by his own imagination or by some artist, whether pictorial or verbal, from information supplied. Some are most inaccurate, these mostly word pictures, and where they err, they err on the highly dramatic side. They need not have done so. The whole conditions were dramatic enough in all their bare simplicity, without the addition of any high coloring. Having made these mental erasures, you will find yourself as one of the crowd faced with the following conditions. A perfectly still atmosphere, a brilliantly beautiful starlit night, but no moon, and so with little light that was of any use. A ship that had come quietly to rest without any indication of disaster. No iceberg visible, no hole in the ship's side through which water was pouring in, nothing broken or out of place, no sound of alarm, no panic, no movement of anyone except at a walking pace, the absence of any knowledge of the nature of the accident, of the extent of damage, of the danger of the ship sinking in a few hours, of the numbers of boats, rafts, and other life-saving appliances available, their capacity, what other ships were near or coming to help, in fact, an almost complete absence of any positive knowledge on any point. I think this was the result of deliberate judgment on the part of the officers, and perhaps it was the best thing that could be done. In particular, the listener must remember that the ship was a sixth of a mile long, with passengers on three decks open to the sea, and port and starboard sides to each deck. He will then get some idea of the difficulty presented to the officers of keeping control over such a large area, and the impossibility of anyone knowing what was happening except in his own immediate vicinity. Perhaps the whole thing can be summed up best by saying that, after we had embarked on the lifeboats and rowed away from the Titanic, it would not have surprised us to hear that all passengers would be saved. The cries of drowning people after the Titanic gave the final plunge were a thunderbolt to us. I am aware that the experiences of many of those saved differed in some respects from the above. Some had knowledge of certain things. Some were experienced travelers and sailors, and therefore deduced more rapidly what was likely to happen. But I think the above gives a fairly accurate representation of the state of mind of most of those on deck that night. All this time people were pouring up from the stairs and adding to the crowd. I remember at that moment thinking it would be well to return to my cabin and rescue some money and warmer clothing if we were to embark in boats. But looking through the vestibule windows and seeing people still coming upstairs, I decided it would only cause confusion passing them on the stairs and so remained on deck. I was now on the starboard side of the top boat deck. The time? About 12.20. We watched the crew at work on the lifeboats, numbers 9, 11, 13, 15, some inside arranging the oars, some coiling ropes on the deck, the ropes which ran through the pulleys to lower to the sea, others with cranks fitted to the rocking arms of the davits. As we watched, the cranks were turned, the davits swung outwards until the boats hung clear on the edge of the deck. 
Just then an officer came along from the first-class deck and shouted above the noise of escaping steam. All women and children get down to the deck below and all men stand back from the boats. He had apparently been off duty when the ship struck and was lightly dressed with a white muffler twisted hastily around his neck. The men fell back and the women retired below from the next deck. Two women refused at first to leave their husbands, but partly by persuasion and partly by force they were separated from them and sent down to the next deck. I think that by this time the work on the lifeboats and the separation of men and women impressed on us slowly the presence of imminent danger, but it made no difference in the attitude of the crowd. They were just as prepared to obey orders and to do what came next as when they first came on deck. I do not mean that they actually reasoned it out. They were the average Teutonic crowd with an inborn respect for law and order and for traditions bequeathed to them by generations of ancestors. The reasons that made them act as they did were impersonal, instinctive, hereditary. But if there were anyone who had not by now realized that the ship was in danger, all doubt on this point was to be set at rest in a dramatic manner. Suddenly a rush of light from the forward deck, a hissing roar that made us all turn from watching the boats, and a rocket leapt upwards to where the stars blinked and twinkled above us. Up it went, higher and higher, with a sea of faces upturned to watch it, and then an explosion that seemed to split the silent night in two, and a shower of stars sank slowly down, and some teamed to sp- and went out one by one. And with a gasping sigh, one word escaped the lips of the crowd. Rockets! Anybody knows what rockets at sea mean and presently another, and then a third. It is no use denying the dramatic intensity of the scene. Separate it if you can from all the terrible events that followed, and picture the calmness of the night, the sudden light on the decks crowded with people in different stages of dress and undress, the background of huge funnels and tapering masts revealed by the soaring rocket, whose flash illumined at the same time the faces and minds of the obedient crowd, the one with mere physical light, the other with a sudden revelation of what its message was. Everyone knew without being told that we were calling for help from anyone who was near enough to see. The crew were now in the boats. The sailors standing by the pulley ropes let them slip through the cleats in jerks, and down the boats went to level with B-deck. Women and children climbed over the rail into the boats and filled them. When full, they were lowered one by one beginning with number nine, the first on the second-class deck, and working backwards towards fifteen. All this we could see by peering over the edge of the boat deck, which was now quite open to the sea, the four boats which formed a natural barrier being lowered from the deck and leaving it exposed. About this time, while walking on the deck, I saw two ladies come over from the port side and walk towards the rail separating the second-class from the first-class deck. There stood an officer barring the way. "'May we pass to the boats?' they said. "'No, madam,' he replied politely. "'Your boats are down on your own deck,' pointing to where they swung below. The ladies turned and went towards the stairway, and no doubt were able to enter one of the boats. They had ample time. I mention this to show that there was, at any rate, some arrangement, whether official or not, 
for separating the classes and embarking in boats. How far it was carried out, I do not know. But if the second-class ladies were not expected to enter a boat from the first-class deck, while steerage passengers were allowed access to the second-class deck, it would seem to press rather hardly on the second-class men, and this is rather supported by the low percentage saved. Almost immediately after this incident, a report went round among men on the top deck, the starboard side, that men were to be taken off the port side. How it originated, I'm quite unable to say, but can only suppose that as the port boats, numbers 10 to 16, were not lowered from the top deck quite so soon as the starboard boats, they could still be seen on the deck. It might be assumed that women were being taken off on one side and men on the other. But in whatever way the report started, it was acted on at once by almost all the men, who crowded across to the port side and watched the preparation for lowering the boats, leaving the starboard side almost deserted. Two or three men remained. However, not for any reason that we were consciously aware of. I can personally think of no decision arising from reasoned thought that induced me to remain rather than cross over. But while there was no process of conscious reason at work, I am convinced that what was my salvation was a recognition of the necessity of being quiet and waiting in patience for some opportunity of safety to present itself. Soon after the men had left the starboard side, I saw a bandsman, the cellist, come round the vestibule corner from the staircase entrance and run down the now deserted starboard deck, his cello trailing behind him, the spike dragging along the floor. This must have been about 12.40 a.m. I suppose the band must have begun to play soon after this and gone on till after 2 a.m. Many brave things were done that night, but none more brave than by those few men playing minute after minute as the ship settled quietly lower and lower in the sea. And the sea rose higher and higher to where they stood. The music they played serving alike as their own immortal requiem and their right to be recorded on the rolls of undying fame. Looking forward and downward, we could see several of the boats now in the water, moving slowly one by one from the side, without confusion or noise, and stealing away in the darkness which swallowed them in turn as the crew bent to the oars. An officer, I think First Officer Murdoch, came striding along the deck, clad in a long coat, from his manner and face evidently in great agitation, but determined and resolute. He looked over the side and shouted to the boats being lowered, Lower away, and when afloat, row round to the gangway and wait for orders. Aye, aye, sir, was the reply, and the officer passed by, and went across the ship to the port side. Almost immediately after this, I heard a cry from below of, Any more ladies? And looking over the edge of the deck, saw boat 13 swinging level with the rail of B deck, with the crew, some stokers, a few men passengers, and the rest ladies, the latter being about half the total number. The boat was almost full and just about to be lowered. The call for ladies was repeated twice again, but apparently there were none to be found. Just then one of the crew looked up and saw me looking over. Any ladies on your deck, he said. No, I replied. Then you'd better jump. I sat on the edge of the deck with my feet over, threw the dressing gown which I had carried on my arm all of the time into the boat, dropped, 
and fell in the boat near the stern. As I picked myself up, I heard a shout. Wait a moment, here are two more ladies. And they were pushed hurriedly over the side and tumbled into the boat, one into the middle and one next to me in the stern. They told me afterwards that they had been assembled on a lower deck with other ladies and had come up to B-deck, not by the usual stairway inside, but by one of the vertically upright iron ladders that connect each deck with the one below it, meant for the use of sailors passing about the ship. Other ladies had been in front of them and got up quickly, but these two were delayed a long time by the fact that one of them, the one that was helped first over the side into boat 13 near the middle, was not at all active. It seemed almost impossible for her to climb up a vertical ladder. We saw her trying to climb the swinging rope ladder up the Carpathia's side a few hours later, and she had the same difficulty. As they tumbled in, the crew shouted, Lower away! But before the order was obeyed, a man with his wife and a baby came quickly to the side. The baby was handed to the lady in the stern. The mother got in near the middle, and the father at the last moment dropped in as the boat began its journey down to the sea, many feet below. Coming next, Chapter 4, The Sinking of the Titanic, Seen from a Lifeboat. We'll be back next Wednesday night. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.